Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Will Miller, a political scientist now employed as an associate vice president with Campus Labs. And with me today is Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing well. How about you, Will? I'm doing well. Um, obviously, it's been a, a fun political political week, and um, I think we should just learn to expect that at this point. But every week seems to bring new. Always to something about. exciting, yeah. <laughs> there, you know, there are times. Well, I got to say, where I wish I were like a English professor or math professor, because it's just <laughs> keeping up can be exhausting. But it's also it's also uh, it's also pretty exciting. It's been fun for me, especially this election season. Um, I travel around and talk to lots of campuses, and I always use the line that I'm a recovering political scientist <laughs> and point out that, that there are times where I wish I was in a classroom, and there are times where I am so thankful I don't have to walk in and try to explain the world to people right no now, kidding. Uh, which makes it a, you know, it's a, a love-hate relationship is what I'd say. Absolutely. Um, and one of the stories I think we should talk about today, Mike, is one that, um, you know, I think flies under the radar a little bit. Um, and I think that's because it's it's difficult to understand looking at, at fiscal and monetary policy and looking at the role the Fed plays in uh, the U.S. economy and the U.S. political system and what we see with what, what Trump's doing. And obviously, within the last week, we've seen Donald Trump turn on his own Fed Reserve chairman um, that he had basically hand-selected, uh, Jerome Powell. Um, and the big concern that Trump seems to be having is that the Fed um, hiked short-term interest rates three times this year. So it went from two to 2.25%. Um, and Trump has been very, very clear on feeling that that is off base, saying he's not even a little bit happy with what Powell's doing. Um, what do you think about what the Fed's doing? Well, I, I gotta say, I love the, the second part of that quote that you just mentioned. Then he says, and I'm not blaming anybody, but I'm just telling you that I think the Fed is way off base with what they're doing. I'm not blaming, not blaming anyone, anybody. but I blame the but Fed. you're wrong. <laughs> Yeah. And, and then, and then, and I think in the same interview, he says, uh, "You know, they're making a mistake because I have a gut, and my gut tells me more sometimes than anyone else's brain can ever tell me." Gut-based fiscal uh, monetary policy—that's uh, maybe not the not the way to do it. I would say. Well, you know, on a more serious note, though, I mean, I expect that of the president. Um, this is not uncommon in one sense because almost all presidents want the Fed to keep interest rates low. Donald Trump is just a lot more vocal about it. He'll just say it in no uncertain terms. Is the way, and the reason they want to do that is lower rates tends to goose the economy. And when rates get higher, that means credit is, is more difficult to come by and the economy tends to slow down and no president wants it. Probably the best example of this is actually President Nixon who uh, uh, nominated uh, Arthur Burns to be Fed chair. And then he pushed really hard on Burns to ease rates in the run-up to the 1972 election, and in part because Nixon was convinced that the Fed wasn't responsive enough in 1960. And of course, he was in a close election with Kennedy that, well, some say he actually uh, won, but ended up not winning because of, uh, you know, the dead voting in Chicago for Kennedy and all that sort of thing. But so he was really focused on it. And all presidents, you know, are, are uncomfortable with that, which is why 
the Fed is largely independent of political control. There's a very good reason for that, you know? Um, and that's because, you know, I, I love the quote, and this is the famous quote from William McChesney Martin. He was the Fed chair from, believe it or not, Will, 1951 to 1970. That's just astonishing. Wow. Yeah, I, he said the job of the Federal Reserve is to take away the punch bowl just as the party gets going. You know, and that, Love and, that quote. Yeah, and what he means by that is when you think that the economy's potentially overheating, well, you have to you have to raise those interest rates to make sure you don't you don't get into any kind of inflationary issue, and that's pretty that's a pretty important, and that's not a popular thing to do, and the Fed has slowly been doing that. And I think that's actually the right move, though. I can certainly understand why the president doesn't like it. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think, I think just in general, when we get into fiscal and monetary policy, it's just, there's so many variables in play that figure out that economic status and where we're at. And when we look at things like interest rates, when we look at money in circulation, um, and then when we obviously look at what we're doing in terms of taxing and spending, and how all of this comes together, it's hard to wrap your head around. Um, I mean, I consider myself fairly well-read and that I look at the news fairly frequently. It's still tough to make sense of how these different levers are going to work. And I think that punch bowl analogy is perfect because it's true. If the economy is going too strongly and too well and it doesn't have the back-end support, the Fed's the group that needs to pump the brakes for us, um, which means they're going to be um, incredibly unpopular in some cases. I think, again, what we're seeing here is the the interesting factor of obviously a president who does not necessarily follow the traditional playbook. And then again, especially the fact that it's his handpicked fed chair that, that he's really coming down hard on with this. And again, I mean, I think we've seen the the success of some of these policies. I mean, wall street sure didn't seem to mind what the fed did. Um, you know, I think the Dow went up 3%, 2% somewhere in there um, immediately after this happening. Um, but I think the hard part here is for the, for the Trump supporter who maybe does or doesn't fully understand the role of the Fed and the monetary policy side um, of sort of what they're they're being asked to do, do they end up with that blind rage based on Trump saying his gut tells him that this is a bad idea? And then does that turn into, again, distrust of institutions? Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, another point on this is that, I mean, right now the federal funds rate is 2 to 22 point sorry, two to 2.25%. And they're expected to uh, hike the rate, I think, to like another quarter of a point, I believe it is in December. But that's really still pretty low from historical standards. And one of the reasons why you really don't, another reason why you really don't want that rate so low is because if a recession hits, one of the key things that can be done very quickly to comp to combat the recession is for the Fed to lower that federal funds rate, which eases up credit and can help to boost the economy to kind of kickstart it out of a recession. But if you're already right around that, you're close to zero or, you know, then you don't have nearly as much leeway to lower that rate. And when you get to a point where your interest rate is almost effectively zero, the only thing the Fed can do is engage in um, non-traditional monetary policy, which is quantitative easing and things like that, which a lot of folks have huge problems with, especially on the right. So again, having a rate that's not too close to zero gives the Fed 
more tools to be able to respond to a true crisis. And again, you're right, this stuff is very complex, but I think the Fed is doing a, a pretty good job. And I think in part, it's able to do that good job because it is so insulated from this uh, political pressure. Yeah, which again, I think that's the big question right now is, you know, what's the long-term independence look like if all of a sudden the yeah. Fed's going to become a political target? Um, and again, I mean, to your point, I think there's definitely... Um, we've seen evidence of the fact that, I mean, you know, it's great that unemployment is low right now, um, but if the Fed's not doing something, we have to be concerned about what's going to happen to inflation if it starts to turn. Yeah. Um, and I think that's being accounted for. My big curiosity will be to see what happens during the December Fed meeting. Um, and if a lot of this by Trump has been an effort to try to get them to not bump it again, mm-hmm. um, because I think there's a lot of speculation that it could go up to two and a half percent. And I think, you know, I, I hope that what Trump's doing is trying to to, you know, play into that discussion as opposed to just kind of blanketed go after the Fed. But I think we'll see, you know, if there's impact or not, because if they end up not raising the interest rate. You have to wonder if some of the politics sure. has, has gotten into their heads a little bit, which, again, won't be good for the U.S. economy long term if they start worrying about political repercussions. Absolutely. You know, one other thing I wanted to mention on this story, I don't know if you heard this, Will, um, but there are reports that the, the uh, President Trump actually had considered reappointing Janet Yellen to uh, to, to lead the to lead the Fed again. And um, but he told some aides at the National Economic Council that uh, more than one occasion that he was really hung up on the fact that she's only five three and that. That meant she wasn't tall enough to lead the Fed. <laughs> and I thought, you know, um, I don't know if that's true or not, but it seems so very Trumpian. So I said, it, that is that very out. Trump-like uh, in terms of of what you'd expect. That's I wish that surprised me more than it does. And, and again, you know, there, there's there's sort of a tradition of an incoming. Uh, it's very common for a new president to reappoint the person that his predecessor had appointed and uh, more often than not. And so once again, Trump sort of breaks with tradition because he wants his own person in there and so forth. And and now obviously he is not happy with uh, uh, with Jerry, as he as he pointed out. So anyway. Absolutely. Um let's go to some listener mail. Uh, and we got a series of questions uh, in recently from Stuart in London. Um, and we're going to we're going to talk about two of them today. Um, and Stuart, just so you know, says, hi, Matt, Trey, Jay, and the rest of the team. I found your podcast looking for something to make sense of all the crazy that's happening in America, but without the hyperbole, aren't we all? Yeah. Um, so far, thank you for giving a balanced, rational conversation on issues that leave me often confused. And then he posed four questions. Like I said, we're going to talk about two of them today. Uh, and I'm actually going to start with uh, what was Stuart's third question. Uh, he says he's interested in hearing our thoughts on voting and registration. He's long held an opinion that uh, voting is a civic duty and those who complain about the system without engaging with it or what is wrong with many countries. So he's asking what our thoughts are on compulsory voting like Australia has, for example. Um, so, Mike, what are, what, what are your thoughts? What is your take on voting and registration, et cetera? You know, I am so torn on this. Uh, I know that in in countries that have compulsory voting, that the uh, uh, that voting percentage is much higher, I believe, in like 70s or 80s or even higher than that uh, last time I checked. And, you know, I, I think and it's not like you go to jail if you don't vote. I think it's like the equivalent of jaywalking fee or something like that. So it's, a, it's more just kind of a, a signaling that this is an important thing to do. This is not just uh, something you can do but it's considered to be an obligation as a citizen. And so in that sense, I think it's a very healthy message to 
to send. You know, it's it's something that you are supposed to do as a citizen. Um, and certainly as a Democratic partisan, I know that if more people voted, Democrats would do better, and I think that would be better for the country. Um, so there's that as well. But I get what you might call the elitist argument, saying that you know, voting should, uh, we want more people to vote, but ultimately we want more people to cast informed votes. And that, I, I have a certain amount of sympathy for that as well. I don't want people to just go in there and vote just to vote. I want people to think about the issues and so forth. So I, I'm a little bit torn. On balance, I think that's a good idea, but I certainly am at least somewhat sympathetic to the arguments of people who take issue with it. Yeah, and I, I have to agree. I am on the, the fence. I would love to live in a country where um, voting rates were, were higher, but it was the informed voter, as you said, Mike. I, I have taken heat on college campuses before because I have actively worked against student activities and student affairs offices where they're talking about everybody has to register, everybody has to vote. Um, for a lot of the same reasons you mentioned, um, the act of voting is, is a responsibility. Um, it's not about going in and just checking boxes. These races have real impacts. I mean, we've seen, um, I saw at least one race this midterm that was won by the single vote again. Um, and again, I think the the issue is we need to do a better job of actually kind of growing a culture of civic engagement that goes beyond that ballot box. I would openly tell my students, if you don't feel prepared, if you don't want to vote, don't let somebody force you to vote. Um, but you should want to vote. You should want to be informed. You should inform yourself. Same thing too. The issue I've always found is there, there are times where even today I won't vote in every election on a ballot, um, where I'll go in feeling like I have the information I need and that I have a preference in 80% of the races. And I don't feel compelled to, to maybe vote for, you know, in Florida, ironically, we vote for mosquito board control. Um, I, I just, I, that's something I'm not going to devote energy to. Right. Um, I'm not being attacked by mosquitoes, so I assume it's working. Um, so, I mean, it's helping people realize that we obviously want that voting. The idea of compulsory voting, though, like you've kind of pointed out, makes me makes me a little uneasy because I think that goes beyond, um, you know, the the choice that we like to offer citizens, the ability to have that autonomy. Um, but I definitely also understand the question. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I, but in the end, if something like that came up for a vote, if it were, say, a ballot initiative or if I were a member of Congress or something like that, I would actually be in favor. I mean, I, I've long felt that we don't take, we, we, we oftentimes, I'm going to get a little kind of philosophical here, um, we talk a lot about our rights as citizens and what we are owed and, and, and freedoms and so forth. But I think what's really missing from a lot of these conversations is what our obligations are, what our responsibilities are as citizens. I mean, I would be in favor, in fact, of a national service requirement. I think that would be a great idea. I think, I think we are just far too cavalier about just saying, well, what's in it for me? I think that we all owe a, a debt to this country and all should play a part. And I'm okay with that being compulsory i think you know i think that's a i think that's one argument why i would actually uh ha like the idea that some have suggested of reinstating a, a draft with some sort of national service option that sort of thing i think we're all in this together and i think that the burden should be borne equally and, and one of the simplest ways 
that you can participate and can take part in this and contribute is by voting. And so in the end, I would actually be for that. And it's interesting on the national service piece. I, I actually do agree. I think that would be a positive. And I think what's nice is we wouldn't even necessarily need compulsory voting at that point, because I think the idea of national service requirements would actually encourage individuals to be informed and make them a part of the process. Um, and then obviously there's a lot of good that come come out of that work, because I agree with you on the philosophical points that um, I, I am definitely one that I will say, if, even though I don't necessarily tell students or others that they need to vote, I am quick to point out that if you don't vote, you've lost your ability to, to gripe to me in the same way as folks who who have participated. Because again, we talk, we, we talk on the regular show, we've talked on um, multiple times about the idea of the democratic bargain, really, where sometimes your candidate wins, sometimes your candidate loses. You go back to the drawing board and wait till the next election. Uh, but if you're not participating, you weren't really part of the drawing board. Yeah. Um, so I, it's important to just keep that part in mind, too, that if you don't want to be engaged and you intentionally remove yourself from that process where you can have your voice heard um, the most impactful way possible, um, obviously, then you, you're kind of stuck to have to deal with whatever comes from the election you didn't participate in. But, but, you know, the other part of this, and we haven't really talked about it at this point, is that, you know, I think a growing number of people don't participate because they feel that, well, as the president has, is not shy of putting it, the system is rigged. Um, and, I, you know, and that's why, again, one of the reasons why I think Donald Trump is such a, a dangerous person is because he pushes this narrative much harder than any president, uh, anyone in politics really at any significant level in the United States has pushed it for a long, long time, really since probably the, I would say the Civil War uh, years. And that, and so you can understand if people are being told that the system is in fact rigged and their vote won't count or that it will be manipulated by partisan voting officials, well, that's understandable. So I think there's a duty to our political officials not to spread these, well, this, this literally fake news and false stories about the system being rigged and, and full of fraud and that sort of thing. Um, what do you think about that? No, I completely agree. And I mean, again, I unfortunately living in Florida, I know all too well about not handling elections well. Um, and yeah. I think that the types of coverage we give to those stories do cause problems. Yeah. Um, and again, I mean, obviously, if we look at, at Florida today, we look at the recounts, we look at the things that happened continually blasting information, whether true or false, about ballots and rental cars, ballots being found in boxes and drawers, it just leads to distrust in the system. Yeah. Yeah. And we have to have distrust in the system. And the irony for me is it always comes back to the fact we have all these technological advances. We can do so many amazing things in the world and we still haven't figured out how to count ballots. Um, you know, there's part of me that's, you know, do we go back to the days where who cares if it's Lord knows how many millions of ballots somebody sits there and just flips through each one with a tally sheet. Is that what we have to do? Um, because again, I think the faith in the system does make a difference because more than anything for people that do participate and choose to participate, I want them to feel like that participation is valid yeah. counted and makes a difference. Even if they don't win, that it was still, my vote was actually counted, which as much as it drove me completely insane with Stacey Abrams fighting to the very end in Georgia, um, and her idea of we're going to wait till every vote's counted. Philosophically, I think there was a, a there was a good meaning behind that in the sense of I'm not going to concede until everybody's had a chance to have their ballot counted because they need to feel like it matters. Yeah, because it does. But, you know, on the other hand, though, I think that we're not real. A lot of people aren't realistic or don't understand the fact that 
our, our voting systems are probably, I would say, 99.9% accurate. They count almost all the votes accurately. And that last little bit, almost, any, almost every case is not because of these nefarious plots. It's just because any technology with dealing with large enough numbers is imperfect. And it's it, to get to the point where I, we were talking about this in, in, in one of my classes, uh, my public policy class, just a, just a couple of days ago. And I said, to them, listen, it's like with, say, any public policy issue, maybe it's um, um, highway safety. We could potentially make have a goal of zero highway fatalities if we wrapped everyone in bubble wrap and had them have like NASCAR frames around that. But the cost of getting from ninety of that to that last little percentage is huge, and and that's the problem. Is is to get the voting system to be a hundred percent would be would would just entail enormous costs, and so we're just dealing with the fact that human systems are to some extent imperfect and that doesn't mean that there's some evil person behind the scenes who is trying to ensure that your vote doesn't count exactly and i think that's the key and i mean, and i think another part of this is obviously being something that we allow states and localities to sort of control leads to to variations across systems i've seen it you know voting in ohio versus missouri versus florida is an eye-opening different experience at every step of the way um, but I think you're right, Mike. And I think the issue, too, is it's not just the cost of going from that 99.9% to 100. It's the fact that if we did put forth that cost, I would be curious to know in the last decade how many elections would change. Yeah, exactly. Um, because yeah. My, my guess is it would be a very small number, if any. Yep. Um, it would take a lot of money to get there. That's, um, that's a great point because you have to weigh the opportunity cost. If we spent, say, $30 billion to do that, that's $30 billion we can't spend on. Well, if you want a wall, I guess it would be that. Yeah, it could or, be a wall. Could, <laughs> it could be anything, you know? And, and so I, I did some back of the envelope kind of calculations a few days ago, and it seems to me to get us to a reasonable point, we're talking, at least in terms of voting machines, it's, it wouldn't be that much. You know, we're talking maybe uh, the Congress appropriated $380 billion recent or 380 million, sorry, 380 billion. My God, recently. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, what I would like to see is Congress appropriate, say, maybe like 5 billion to the states, which in the, the scope of the federal budget is not that much at all. And just give the, give the states that money as the grant contingent upon their adopting certain best practices. I think that would be a great, a great thing to do. And I would like to think that that would be a bipartisan type of issue. Yeah, and again, if it's not bipartisan, that's going to raise red flags for me. Sure. Uh, if there are groups that are opposed to that type of effort, and it's not just based on actual cost concerns, yeah. that would raise raise major concerns. And again, I know different states have tried different things. I mean, Florida, one of the best practices is um, absentee ballots, for example, have to be available at 7 o'clock when the polls close, and they want results immediately, and the state has mandated updates every 15 minutes, mm -hmm. um, which puts people on. But again, that doesn't stop the problems. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't necessarily make me feel like my vote counted for sure. So we have to do a better job of not highlighting the negatives here. And and what, speaking of bipartisanship, I didn't realize I wasn't trying to give us a, a, a slick segue into the second question from Stuart, <laughs> but I noticed that I just did, yeah. Yeah, and that second question from Stewart's, is there really as little bipartisanship in legislating as it appears with one party voting down the other's policies just because, or do bipartisan accomplishments just not make for good TV? Um, what do you think, Mike? Well, I think 
that a couple of things. Number one, I think that certainly there is some bipartisan agreement on certain things and certain really big things. Uh, we somehow manage to get a budget almost every year, and that's the single most important thing, I would argue, that the federal government does. Now, we recently, in this last year, there was a strong bipartisan consensus. Now, in part, that's because we basically threw money at the problem and didn't really deal with some of the longer-term issues. But but yeah, there is some bipartisanship, and we, we try to highlight that when it occurs on the show. But that's not nearly as exciting as when there's conflict, certainly. So I, I agree with Stuart's suggestion that, well, it just doesn't make for good TV. And so we, we see less of it reported than there actually is. But, but to the second part of that, I'd say that, well, yeah, there certainly is a sense that you don't want to give the other guys a win even if it would be potentially good for the country. Exactly. And I mean, I think part of that comes back to, you know, sort of the NAFTA 2.0 conversation um, and that idea of, you know, even if I look at this bill and I like it, what does that mean in a, not even a bigger picture, in a political picture? Um, if I support this and how does that play? Do my, do my supporters approve of me reaching across the aisle or do they want me to be, you know, a bulldog who's going to fight for my side no matter what? Um, See, I mean, I'm kind of torn on this question in general because I do agree with Stuart. I think a lot of this is the things that get done from day to day just aren't as sexy. Um, And because they're not as sexy, the news doesn't want to cover it because it's not going to get that debate. Um, Which, I mean, I I think, you know, Mike, I mean, you mentioned the idea of this show and the mission of this show and what we talk about. I mean, if we just came on and talked about, you know, all of the things that happen on a daily basis, it wouldn't be as fun to listen to because we'd be sitting here saying, yeah, that made good sense. It's government in action. It's it's the day-to-day bureaucracy we expect and we need, but it's not the politicized debates that we expect to see. Um, mm-hmm. Now, again, the big irony I've seen in the last few years is that we can take some of those very boring things and make them very, very political if somebody chooses to, and if the news latches on and then it takes off. Um, so I do think there's obviously bipartisanship that happens on a daily basis. And I think it even goes outside of the political side. I mean, the relationships in Washington are very different than what we see on committee floors. Um, I mean, you know, you look at the friendships and you know, we've talked about seniority and some of the older members. You can go back to, um, obviously, the, the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, where it appeared that every Democrat just was out for, for Grassley as chairman. Um, but in reality, those are some of his best friends in D.C., and he talks about that, that there's just a difference between when we're almost on stage versus off stage and what we're fighting for versus we get along as basic human beings. And from a value standpoint, I think that matters just as much to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, one final point I just want to make make on this is that, you know, it, it, it also seems to me that uh, when we're, uh, if you're trying to understand the logic behind it, some people might say, well, how could you just try to torpedo the other side? Isn't that, you know, you're just going against the interest of, of the American people. And, you know, that that's sort of the, Machiavellian way to look at it. And I hear Jay saying, yeah, that's because that Jay's our, our kind of resident Machiavellian. But, uh, but there's also, I think, the argument that a lot of people tell themselves as well, I'm going against this because it's important to me to do what I can to try to build our majority or get us in the majority so we can give the American people a much better deal. Now, maybe that's just a rationalization that they're telling themselves, but I think that's what some people legitimately believe. It's safe. So I don't want to agree to this good thing because I'm waiting for a time where I can give this better thing to the American people. Absolutely. And again, that's for me, that's, that's what we need to work towards. I mean, we need to figure out how to 
to tackle that so we can keep that again civility i mean it's about civility at that point and the bipartisanship for me shows that sure so let's talk about some things that that we've been reading or listening to um so mike do you want to go ahead and kick us off with with something you've been paying attention to the last week or so um, well, yeah, actually, one thing that I wanted to mention is uh, a really interesting uh, profile of uh, soon-to-be, I believe, uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. This is a, a fairly long thing in the uh, in the New York Times called Pelosi's Last Battle. It's just over six thousand words, and and I I already knew quite a lot about. Nancy Pelosi, because I've been following her career for well for decades now at this point, and but I really think even I learned some things. And whether you love her, hate her, somewhere in between, I think it's well worth uh, reading to get a better sense of who she is, her political career, and just to get a better feel for the person who's the next Speaker of the House. So that's one thing that I wanted to recommend. And there's another thing I wanted to recommend also, and this is again from the New York Times. So I know people say, ah, you're New York Times, but it's a, it was an article on the psychology of political polarization. And the reason I want to recommend this, it's an interesting article in and of itself. But what I found really fascinating about it was it talked about what they called these hidden tribes of America, and it sort of broke down based on this this huge questionnaire from like I don't know eight thousand some people they did they 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 have this group of almost two thirds of Americans they call the exhausted majority, which is a great phrase, I think, basically saying that so many people are just tired of all these people on the what they call the wings yelling and screaming on these extremists, and most Americans they argue just aren't that extreme, and so they see a lot more opportunities for people to come together by appealing to the exhausted majority. And I'm, I'm sort of sympathetic to that argument. Another neat part of this, Will, as you know, is they allow folks, if you click on their site, we'll, we'll have the link for that as well. You can take the quiz. Um, and I took the quiz and it, it, according to the quiz, I am in the progressive activist wing. Now, I know some of the progress, the real progressives who listen to this show and say, oh, come on, Mike, you're a centrist Democrat. And yeah, I have some issues with some of the questions in the quiz, like a lot of false dichotomies, that sort of thing. But it was interesting to take anyway. Um, and I know you, you took the, you read the article and took the quiz as well, right, Will? I did. Um, and it put me as a, a traditional conservative. Um, and I can tell you that I, I agree with a lot of what it says. Um, but again, Mike, to your point about, you know, the concerns we have with some of these tools, um, it makes a lot of assumptions. Um, and one of the big assumptions it made on me is that um, the values I place are on patriotism and Christian foundations. Um, and I can say that I'm not a particularly religious person. Um, and a lot of the values I have align with Christian foundations without coming from that religious angle directly, though. So it was interesting for me to read my little synopsis and see yeah. um, a lot of religious assumptions they made based on my my results on some of those dichotomies that you mentioned. Um, but again, I mean, it was it was pretty, pretty accurate. Yeah, but, but, you know, and, and to get I think there's a larger point here. And this is the problem I have with a lot of academic research on stuff like this, just to give you a sense, there's one of the questions that, uh, well, you might remember, uh, it says, uh, which statement do you agree with more? Uh, a, people are largely responsible for their own outcomes in life, or B, people's outcomes in life are determined largely by forces outside of their control. And and I wanted C, it depends, you know, because I, I don't, yep. <laughs> I don't really find myself in either of those camps. I think, well, you know, it's, it's kind of a combination of things. And so 
I felt like I was pigeonholed in a lot of ways. And so, and there's a lot of survey research that's like that, where people are basically forced into a camp. And I, so I'm very sort of skeptical about that sort of thing, which is not to say it's not interesting. And I'd like to believe that a lot of Americans are in what they call the exhausted majority, but uh, uh, about the methodology, uh, a little, I'm a little skeptical. Anyway, so that I thought that both of those things, all those things I think are interesting uh, to read. And uh, uh, what do you have this week, Will? It's interesting. I don't have one piece to point out. Um, and I was thinking about what I'd been reading over the last week. I, I'm a diehard college sports fan. Um, and at first, I've, you know, it didn't even seem political to me, but as I think about it, it's really showing a reflection in a lot of states. It's 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 firing season in college football. Season's over for a lot of teams, and we're seeing college football coaches disappear left and right. And one of the things I've been reading as I've gone through a lot of stories is some schools finally having to say, more or less, while we would like to make a change, we can't afford the outrageous buyouts we've included in these contracts because we don't have the private funding and state funding is decreasing and we need to spend it in other areas. Um, and the reason that really hit me as political is because, I mean, athletics, especially on D1 campuses, is always viewed as kind of the sacred cow where we can make things happen that the political science department would never be able to do. <laughs> you know, we can't get our $200 printer, but we can pay somebody $6 million to not work for us anymore. Um, and I think it's interesting that the fiscal realities of some of these contracts are finally coming to be. And I think that um, in in the big picture, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with that relationship between athletics and higher ed over the next decade, assuming that state funding stays on um, either the same level it is now or decreases a little bit. But the expectations that there will be more fiscal responsibility um, amongst athletic programs, I think, would be a, a big point. So, again, I've just been literally clicking through Sports Illustrated and ESPN and reading some of the decisions that schools have made and then kind of reading the athletic directors and the presidents talking about you know, here's why we're going this route. Yeah. And it's because from a financial standpoint, we can't afford to pay this guy $5 million to go and then hire somebody to replace him for $2.5 million. Yeah, that, that's, um, a, that's, a, that's a great point. You know, uh, it, uh, in, in 39 of the 50 states, the highest paid state employee is a, is a, a, a coach. Uh, it's uh, eight basketball coaches and 31 football coaches, <laughs> you know, so, and that's a, that's a lot of money there. And I think that is a real serious issue given all the problems with, uh, with, with funding uh, higher education. So I, I totally agree. I think it's really not the kind of thing you would right away think is political, but certainly, you know, I, I think you make that, that's an interesting connection there. And one other thing I have to add is, it, it continually amazes me that uh, after this year, it looks like that Jim Harbaugh is still going to have a job as the head coach of Michigan, given the fact that he's been owned by Ohio State for seven years now. I'm so proud of that being an Ohio State fan, but I had, a, I had to throw that in there. Uh, and trust me, Mike, I'm a diehard Ohio State fan, too, so I enjoy nothing more. That beat down a Harbaugh, couple of weeks ago, yeah. <laughs> oh, that was beautiful. And I have to say it was even more beautiful because I, I'd kind of convinced myself mentally that this could be the year where it stops. Uh-huh. Um, so then when it turned around that way, it was even better. I think Jim Harbaugh should be looking at the NFL again and uh, where Ohio State can't necessarily come and compete. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. That's it for the episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you like what you heard. Listener support's obviously what keeps the show going, and we truly appreciate it. Subscribing and sharing episodes also helps. You can do that in your podcast app uh, with the share symbol. And obviously, we always appreciate word of mouth. 
uh, and leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or just random thoughts you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com, or you can head to our Facebook page where you can message us or see some of our posts throughout the week at facebook.com forward slash politicsguys page, and we're on Twitter at politicsguys. Executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, Bruce Johnson, and Will Miller. This show is produced by Michael Baranowski and Will Miller, and we'll be back with you on uh, Saturday with uh, another new show, and we hope you'll join us then.